You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey everybody, it's your old pal Phantom Troublemaker, and before I get going on today's very special episode of the Needless Things Podcast, uh, I've got to drop in here and say that something has happened that's never happened before, which is really not saying much for something that's only on its 13th episode, but last night, C.M. Landris, uh, the lady who I interviewed on today's episode about the movie Mission starring Mil Mascaris, uh, contacted me, letting me know that the Indiegogo campaign had been uh, put on a break, that they're they're sort of pausing it, halting it, getting things together. I don't know the full story. I just know it sounds like they need to uh, kind of get some resources together or something uh, to, to have a little more powerful launch for the thing. And uh, to let everybody know that. So there's no Indiegogo, even though it's mentioned a couple of times in the interview. I just wanted to let you know that, but this is still a great episode. I had fun talking to this lady. Uh, she's, she's full of enthusiasm, and she knows her stuff. So enjoy. Here's the music. Phantomaniacs, I'm recording this at the last possible minute uh, with a dry, torn-up throat and a glass of diet root beer and rum at my side after a weekend that has been nothing short of absolutely amazing. Uh, Friday night, I started my run at Six Flags Over Georgia as the host of Monstrosity Championship Wrestling. We are part of the entertainment there for Six Flags Fright Fest during the month of October uh, and on the latter uh, week of September, obviously. And we are doing four shows a day. Uh, on Saturday and Sunday, Friday night was a special deal for season pass holders, and it's been absolutely fantastic. I worked Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday I brought the family to get my, I guess, compensations worth uh, out of the place, and we had uh, the best family day ever. Friday and Saturday I had a whole lot of fun uh, just doing my thing as the ring announcer, uh, introducing wrestlers to the ring, and uh, trying not to get too dehydrated, which happened Friday. Uh, I got a little lightheaded, I got a little woozy, and I was like, hey, maybe I should bring a water bottle so I can just constantly be drinking water and uh, eating lozenges, eating Hall's fruit soothers for the irritated throat, which mine very much was. Uh, I've never done my voice thing two days in a row like that before because there's a big difference between just talking, which granted doing that, you know, a lot over the course of a couple of days can kind of take it out of you, but actually having to 
get on the mic in front of an arena. And yes, we're in an arena. We're in the Axis Arena in Gotham City. Uh, we're in where the Batman stunt show used to be held. And it's huge and it's awesome. Uh, but there's a big difference between sitting talking and actually doing the, and now on his way to the ring, uh, the undead luchador, the supernatural. And, and I mean that, I didn't even yell that. That was probably louder than it should have because it's 1.40 in the morning on Sunday night and my son is asleep in a room diagonally upstairs from where I am right now, but... Anyway, you get the point. Uh, my voice is not at its best, and I am very glad that I did not say that I could work on Sunday uh, because I don't know how that would have gone. Uh, I did go and watch uh, one of the matches today with the family because I, uh, I wanted Little Troublemaker to see what was going on there, and a zombified Jay Fury scared the heck out of him and we had to leave about halfway through a match which featured the amazingly talented Dragula and Nature Boy Paul Lee versus uh, the Werewolf Cousins, the Kentucky Werewolf uh, played by the amazing Rick Michaels and I'm not entirely sure who his uh, werewolf partner was today because we didn't get to see the whole match because we had to leave because uh, zombie Jay Fury was a little too good at being a zombie. Uh, so kudos to him. Kudos to everybody uh, that, that was in that match. Uh, those guys know how to entertain. They know how to put on a show. And, and I got the treat that I don't normally get being the ring announcer for MCW. I got to sit in the audience and have Dragula and the Kentucky Wolfman beating the shit out of each other right in front of me where I, while I was uh, doing my best to yell at them both without blowing out my vocal cords. Uh, it was a good time. And then we rode rides, and the first ride that we went on all day long was the Mindbender, or as I called it to my son, the Riddler Coaster, because it's, it's Riddler-themed, because it's in Gotham City. And uh, it, it freaked him out a little bit. He wasn't ready to go upside down. He wasn't ready to go so fast. Uh, you know, he got a little upset by that one. And then we went on a bunch of other rides, a little more mild, and he had a blast. Uh, we went on the Runaway Mine Cars probably about four or five times. And then at the end of the day, he wanted to do one more ride. And I was like, look, we've got to go. Uh, we have to leave through Gotham City. That's where we came in. Really, the only other thing we can do is if you wanted to go on the Mindbender again, go on the Riddler coaster again. And he said yes, and we went on it, and he had a blast. He loved it. Uh, he wanted to go on it again, and I said, no, I told you one more ride. But anyway, my point is, when I was a little kid, uh, the very first big boy coaster that I went on was the Mindbender with my dad, Pappy Troublemaker. And I was a little pussy. I cried. Uh, I think I threw up. I'm not positive. And I said I was never going on a roller coaster again. Now, granted, that changed years later. But I, I was generally just a great big pussy about it. Uh, and I'm very happy that my son uh, was not. It took him less than six hours to decide that he was going to try it again and to love the heck out of it. So, obviously... Uh, the wife and I are doing some things right. Uh, we, we have nailed at least a small portion of the parenting thing. So that makes me feel pretty darn good. Uh, you know what else makes me feel pretty darn good is the fact that I have this interview for you today. 
Mr. Joe Crow of the Dragon Con American Sci-Fi Classics track contacted me several months ago and said, Hey, man, I've been in touch with the people who are making the new Mill Mascaris movie, and I thought that might be of interest to you. And I said, Heck yeah, Joe Crow, that would be of interest to me. And uh, I kind of thought, well, he's going to... Uh, set up a podcast and I'll, I'll, you know, join in and help out. And then a couple of weeks ago, he said, okay, what days do you have available? Uh, I'm setting it up now. And it turns out it's going to be a needless things podcast. It's going to be supported and promoted by, uh, Revolution Sci-Fi, uh, Revolution F SF, excuse me. Let me try that again. Revolution SF.com. Um, and obviously on needlessthingssite.com as well, but, uh, it's mine. It's my baby. He handed it over to me because he knew I was the man to talk about it, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about during the interview, uh, how, how I, you know, love Mil Mascaris, love Lucha Libre, uh, how, how I actually got to see, uh, the first modern Mil Mascaris movie in the theater. Uh, that was a very special night where I was awfully fat. But anyway, I uh, get to talk to C.M. Landris, who is the lady behind the new Mel Maskers movie. She's the driving force, and it's uh, we had a great talk. I, I wish we could have gone longer. I wish I had had some more questions, really, because... I feel like we just scratched the surface. I, I didn't. She, she's a great interview, and really had all the information I needed. And I almost wished I, I had, you know, gone in some other directions. But I mean, she, she really does have an interesting story about how this movie came together, and we stayed really focused on the movie. Which, in my attempts to be as Marin-like as possible, I'd wanted to delve a little more into, you know, other stuff, but. I mean, what can I say? The movie is an interesting deal. She's an interesting chick. And, you know, it, it, we got an hour. So uh, here it is now. I don't have much more to say, except you can download the Needless Things podcast from iTunes. Uh, you can listen to it on Stitcher. Uh, still haven't figured out if you can download it there or not. Uh, and you can download it from needlessthingssite.com. Uh, I'm Phantom Troublemaker, and this is the interview with C.M. Landris of Mill Mascaris in Mission. Hey everybody, I'm here today talking with C.M. Landris, the director, producer, and driving force behind the forthcoming Mill Mascaris movie, Mission. Uh, I'm very excited about this one. Obviously, uh, Lucha Libre and Luchador movies are a big influence on me. Uh, C.M., thank you so much for uh, sitting down today and, and talking to me on the Needless Things podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, you... You've been involved with uh, the Lucha movies, with Mil Mascaris movies in particular, 
since uh, Aztec Mummy, which is one that I I have the privilege of seeing uh-huh. in the theater. But oh, that's before, nice. oh yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, there was a big premiere here in Atlanta at the Plaza Theater, and Lita, uh, formerly of WWE WWF fame, uh, kind of introduced everything and presented the movie. It was really cool. I, I felt very lucky to be able to see oh, it in cool. that environment. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, prior to that, though, what 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 brought you to where you are now? What what are kind of your interests and and what got you into this whole crazy world of movies? That's that's funny. That's people always ask me that because like, what are the odds that I would be making this movie? Um, but it's actually a really fun story. I I went to Mizzou, which as you know is where the um, Aztec Mummy uh, movie and Academy of Doom were produced and the writer Jeffrey Ullman is a professor there at Mizzou and so it was I think the last year of um, my time at Mizzou and one of my friends knew that I was they didn't have a film major at the time so I was majoring in random things that were similar to film and um, so my friend came up to me and was like hey you know I know you're interested in film and we're we're making this crazy movie with this guy have you ever heard of him he's a wrestler and he's kind of he's kind of up there in age but he does these movies and everybody loves him and he's gonna wrestle a mummy and da 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 and I was like I have no idea what you're talking about but okay and uh, so, so I went and I was on a PA on the set for one day, and it was really close to the end of my time at Mizzou, so I couldn't even devote any more time. I was just a PA on the set for one day, and I remember <laughs> meeting Meal, and at the time he like he said something to me, and I I didn't know what he said. He had a really thick accent. And he had the mask on, and I couldn't understand what he said, so I just smiled and nodded. Sure, <laughs> and, sure. And so, and that was it. And then I, you know, I moved away to El Paso, and I never really kept up on the movie, and I didn't know what happened to it. I'd never seen it, and I did graduate school in El Paso and came out to L.A., and I, by that time, hadn't talked to that friend in a long time. And so I was out here in L.A., and about my second year, I just randomly saw on Facebook that my friend was um, out here in L.A. on business. So I, you know, messaged him. I was like, hey, why don't we get together? And we did. And he said, you know, we're making another one of these crazy wrestling movies. Since you're out here in L.A. and making movies, why don't you take a look at the script? And I said, okay. And and that was that. And that I met uh, Jeff over email. And, you know, I've been working on the script for, I mean, I've been working on producing this movie for almost two years now. Oh wow! So that's this is this is definitely something where that that one day must have really been kind of a big deal for you for you to come back and invest this much of, of your own time into doing a new one. Yeah, well, I was when I first read the script. You know, I thought. I mean, I've always loved like cult films in general. I love you know George A. Romero and I love The Evil Dead and I love all those crazy cult films that people just obsess over. And um, so I wasn't sure that that was kind of what I wanted to do as a filmmaker. And so I was a little hesitant in the beginning. And then um, and then I, it just kind of clicked. I was like, what am I? Am I crazy? Like, who gets this chance? I mean, Neil Mascaras has been making these movies since the 60s. You know, he's one of the he's like one of the founders of the whole Lucha Libre movement. And he's a, a legend. And who who wouldn't jump at this opportunity? And then. So many other things clicked with me too, in that this huge like cross cultural audience and this kind of resurgence of popularity and this type of this type of lucha libre um, genre and things like that, and then you know just that these are 
the the Aztec Mummy movie was the first Lucha Libre movie in English. And I mean, I'm a big nerd when it comes to languages. I love languages and I love anything, you know, cross-cultural. And that's always been a part of my studies. And so it seemed like the perfect fit for all of my interests and everything I wanted to do with film. So um, so I, I got really excited about it after that. Well, and it, it's this has got to be a really unique opportunity because, you know, not only is it something where you're going to have a lot more control than you would probably have on a lot of other projects, but also you have an installed fan base with this. You have Mil Mascaris, who is a name that mm-hmm. is going to draw regardless of the format that he's working in. So you you have a certain amount of of kind of well we're we're going to have people that are going to be into this there there's not there's yeah. not that unknown factor that you would have with certain other independent projects but at the same time you are going to be able to work with Milmascaris and you're going to be able to put together the the story and the look and the design that that you're envisioning yeah exactly and we that's another thing i love you know, coming out here to L.A., I, I became I've always been a creative person and a little more of a, a research person. And so I've really been developing my business skills, particularly with this movie. And um, and I realized what I've what I've really become is an, not just a filmmaker, but an entrepreneur and doing all the market research. And, you know, I I developed a, a business plan. I don't, I don't really know many independent filmmakers that develop business plans for their <laughs> films, period. Um, but I did. And. You know, it, I, what I realized was I was taking, I teach at UCLA Extension, so I take classes there, and I've done a lot of entrepreneurship and film producing classes, and there was so much overlap and so much I could apply to this film. And so that's a lot of what I did was research the market, research the audience, who are these people that are realistically going to go, and if it gets into a theater, buy a ticket. And what I found was a big audience that will do that, actually, um, because of the the two, you know, two kind of general audiences we have are, of course, wrestling Lucha Libre fans and then um, sci-fi fans. And then within there, there's, you know, kind of subcategories and overlaps and things like that. But those are two really big groups who get really excited about stuff like that. So it's really cool that this is a movie that has that audience. And they're, they're an audience that on some level, you know, they take it seriously, but not seriously like you would take a Batman movie seriously. But they take this seriously as in, like, this this genre of film, it is what it is, and they have an expectation for it. And so it's it's nice that I'll be able to um, hopefully live up to that expectation of, you know, this is, they want to see the wrestling. They want to see, they, you know, they don't want to see a lot of computer graphics. They want to see real stuff in this movie. Yeah, so yeah. that's part of the goal, too. Yeah, it's interesting because this is, uh, you know, the Lucha Libre movies are, are very much their own genre with their own rules, their own world. It's it's a superhero movie, but it's also a science fiction or horror movie. And mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of, uh, I guess, acceptance from the audience of... Definitely. It, it, you know, they, they know what the deal is going in. They're not expecting Dark Knight Rises. They're not yeah. expecting... Uh, you know, a classic sci-fi movie. They're expecting a lot of action, a lot of fun. Uh, and I'll tell you, my my introduction to these movies, the first ones that I saw were uh, some of the old El Santo movies in Spanish. And I, I don't speak mm. Spanish, but <laughs> these are so visual, so kinetic, and the pacing in them is always just so consistent that it it almost doesn't matter that you don't speak the language you can watch them and enjoy them and understand what's going on and it's it's a very 
I, I think these are more visual than than a lot of other genres of movie and that you can just sit back and watch and enjoy them. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if you think about it, wrestling is all visual. Um, and, and that's, that carries over into the film for sure. And yeah, I agree with you. I've told people, like, people ask, where, where can I find, you know, these films? And I, and it, they're not easy to find because a lot of them are old and a lot of them are a little obscure. Um, but you see them, like, floating around at festivals and at, 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 like, niche events and things like that. And, you know, I went to one, about a year ago, I went to um, a screening of, I think, Tales of Massman, which is a documentary that came out last year. And uh, they showed El Santo in the uh, the Wax Museum. And the audience, it was small, it was just a little tiny screening, but, you know, the audience was, like, booing and yelling and cheering yeah. at the screen when Santo would come on. And it, it was just awesome, you know. And it's this movie, and it was little kids, and it was old people. It was every every age group you could imagine there. And they were all so into it, and this old black and white, you know, um, and it's great, and that's the kind of reaction that these movies get, and that's, you know, that's how, that's the reaction that Mill gets, too, and yeah, you don't need to speak, there's, there's not a lot of talking in some of them, I think ours, <laughs> I think ours have maybe a little more, um, a little more talking than some, but, uh, but yeah, you're gonna see in this film, you know, Mill Mascaroth battles, uh, you know, immovable object after immovable object in this to save the world so um so it's pretty cool well and that was uh, that's what's interesting is that you know these movies are definitely there there's kind of a resurgence uh, across the country of sort of local uh independently owned movie theaters having events uh we have a local mm-hmm. the the plaza theater where i saw aztec mummy has events where they will show classic horror movies and they'll make a big it, it's not just showing the movie they'll have people there with props and special effects and doing uh photography and uh, they they make a big deal out of it and the lucha libre movies would be perfect to lend themselves to such a thing but unfortunately uh, I talked about this with Lita at the Aztec Mummy screening. I, I think it would be great to be able to show those movies in a theater, but unfortunately, you know, prints just don't exist because these yeah. were all, you know, these were all made in Mexico. They were all made uh, in very, very little budget with no eye towards the future whatsoever. I mean, nobody mm-hmm. was archiving these prints or anything, uh, so they they just don't exist to be shown in theater, and that's what I think is so special about what you're doing uh, with this new crop of mill masquerade movies is these will be shown in theaters these will be available to create events around and to sort of tour around the country as this this sort of new form of an old medium uh yeah and and that's what i liked so much about aztec mummy was it it held true to everything that we love about the original lucha libre movies in that it had that monsters and it had Mil Mascaris walking around constantly in the mask. You you know you're never going to see <laughs> any of these guys' faces. It doesn't matter if they're eating dinner. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're going out to a club, and it doesn't matter if they're fighting evil. That mask is always there, and they uh, you know it, it held to that. It and it held to everything that was magical about the traditional movies, but it also updated into uh, one everything was english language which was you know for the american audience an important thing i i think we're not quite to the point yet 
where any kind of I don't know that wide release is the right term, but we're we're not going to get a lot of uh, Spanish movies that are mm-hmm. going to get a, a, any kind of attention in America yet. Uh, we're not yeah. far from that, but we're not quite there. So it was yeah, nice I totally to agree. Uh, yeah, it's it, but it was nice. It's it's nice that there's that melding. It's it's modern, but it feels very traditional. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Jeff is really um, Jeff Ullman, the writer of of both the mummy movie and Academy of doom and, um, mission. And he's, he's kind of the master at really capturing that, that crossover audience. Like exactly what you said. Like he, he gets this genre 100%. He gets it inside and out. He gets the appeal of, of the mask. And he just, he just understands it intuitively and has really delved like in depth. And how can we revive this? And yet, um, I mean, still carry over these elements and yet update this and make it more relevant to the audience right now. And so he's really, he did that definitely with um, Aztec Mummy, but I think even more so with Mission. Like, there's some stuff in here that's so, it's so current and it's so now, like, there's a whole, you know, kind of religious versus science element that I think is really cool. It's actually one of my favorite kind of sub plots of the of the movie and then the type of characters that he's written in here the type of aliens i think are are not you know little green men in this they're they're human-like they're you know um they're a little more relatable i think than some of the the older characters but he's really yeah he's really captured that um you know that style and yet been able to update it now, how did you end up? Were were movies your plan? Was was that the plan from the start? Yeah, actually, I remember when I was uh, a kid. Yeah, I, I've had two plans: teach English and make movies. That's been pretty much it my whole life. And um, so, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my I think it was my aunt asked me, and I was probably like twelve or something, what I what I wanted to be, and I wanted to say a director, but I was shy. I didn't. I was afraid like that I would get laughed at because I thought of directors as men. That was a man's job. And as, as a little kid, that's how I viewed it. And so I said an actress. And I have no interest in acting, never really have, but I said it. And then she said, oh, well, you should be a director. You know, that's where the real money is. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so even when I was a kid, I wanted to definitely direct movies. The behind-the-scenes thing was really, I think, where I excel um, and then, of course, writing and producing, I've never, I never really had an interest in that. Um, that has been a learning experience with this film, particularly. The only reason I ever decided to become a producer was because nobody was going to write me a check to direct this movie. So if, if I wanted to make it, I had to, you know, I had to do everything. Um, so that's been a whole learning process. But yeah, I didn't go to film school necessarily. My education has been um, kind of thankfully much more diverse. I, I didn't, I'm not really like my family, no, nobody went to college, nobody knew anything about it. So I was kind of on my own going to college and I didn't know where to go or what to do. I just knew that I wanted to make movies somehow, which in Missouri, where I'm from, um, not a lot of people working in that field. And so I went to Mizzou because it was kind of the biggest and the farthest away with the most interesting stuff. And you know, and they didn't have a film major, but they had a film studies minor. So, of course, I minored in film studies. And then my major was actually interdisciplinary studies. And I did, like, foreign languages and creative writing and um, photography. 
And in my head, that was all related to film. And, like, if I couldn't be a film student, then I was going to take classes that were somehow related. And so it was nice, you know, I got a little more diverse background as a undergraduate. And then I worked as um, a camera person for a news station locally and then eventually moved to El Paso where I did my master's degree. And instead of going and get a master's in film, I really loved that kind of diversity and as an interdisciplinary studies major so I continued that and El Paso had some documentary film classes and I thought at the time that I really wanted to do documentaries and so I did those I did that class and then um, uh, in addition to you know still continuing creative writing and things like that and then I I decided to study abroad with the New York Film Academy so I went to the New York Film Academy in uh, Abu Dhabi during um during graduate school, and that's you know where I got a little little more taste of the Hollywood style of filmmaking, and so I mean that's always been my my way of of doing things is this kind of like roundabout non traditional um, system that works for me, but other people are kind of like what what I have no idea I don't really see the big picture here, but to me it makes perfect sense. Um, so then when I came out to LA, you know I started. Um, immediately trying to make short films and directing web series. And, um, you know, you meet every, everyone's doing something out here in L.A. So there's no shortage of projects to get involved with. But it's really been been this one where I've had to, because I teach during the day too, so I have a pretty full schedule, but I had to put everything down, especially since January, and focus, you know, 100% on getting this movie made. So, um, so you know, I haven't done as much as those kind of short films and that practical stuff that people do to keep their skills up. But um, at the same time, I've, I've got a really cool project and I've learned a lot in the process. So, so you really uh, from, from Missouri basically just struck out in the dark and have, have taken a really interesting path. This, you say it's a little different path, but I've got to say this has probably given you a whole lot more style than a lot of people kind of finding your so. own way to get where you were going. I I hope so. I think um I think I do. You know, I watch a lot of um well, I watch a lot of anything on Netflix, I guess, but um I watch a lot of kind of non non-Hollywood films and here, you know, we're immersed in Hollywood in LA. It's Hollywood 100% and you get, you still are more likely to get diversity in film here in Hollywood than you would in the middle of Missouri. Um, it's sometimes, but at the same time, it's still not that diverse. So I really like try to go out of my way to watch a lot of foreign films, especially. I love, I love Asian horror films, especially from Korea and Japan. And um, you know, there are so many things happening around the world in film. Just today, I just read this amazing article. Well, it was an NPR thing about the first female director in Saudi um, who produced and directed the like the first feature-length film ever shot entirely in Saudi Arabia. Um, and so, you know, it's really inspiring to see what other people are doing out there. And to, even though you have the... I pay attention, I think, mostly to the business side of film here in Hollywood. But creatively, I like to pay attention to things that are going on elsewhere. That's that's got to be a good outlook because I mean really you have working uh, in the system you kind of have no choice but to follow that business uh, what's going on there but creatively you're right it's interesting in America we have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. in the rest of the world I mean we <laughs> we have 
American movies and, you know, every once in a while something foreign will sort of slip through the cracks, maybe get a little bit of attention, and then within a year there will be an American version of it. Yeah, exactly. But those are there there's so many other movies going on out there in Europe, in Asia, everywhere that we just know nothing about here as a general public. Yeah, I I teach um English as a second language at UCLA Extension and so it's nice I get um I kind of get to to know a couple of things. I really I really pay attention to my students um and I I like to know what they're watching that's American. And I like to know what they're watching from their countries, like, and listening to, too. I mean, any kind of, like, cultural media stuff to see what's going on. It's really interesting what they know from American culture and how much they know from one another's um, countries compared to how little we know here in the United States. Like, you have some kind of, you know, European pop star that will be super famous in, like, Korea or Japan, and we'll have no idea here in the United States. Um Things like that, or you know, movies that that other countries will share, especially among um, you know countries that have similar language roots. So, like, I know that Korean television dramas are really popular in Japan, which just kind of blows my mind. I'm like, really? You sit there and watch Korean dramas in Japanese? Like, I can't imagine <laughs> like some like Korean drama being a big hit here in the U.S. with, you know, English-speaking American audiences just glued to their television sets waiting right, to right. read subtitles. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we are very, very insular here. We we kind of stick to what we know, and and it's amazing how there are things that are big in the whole rest of the world that we just don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah, particularly pop music is is one of those things that we we generate our own, and that's that's it. Yeah, that's as much as we need to know. I always got a kick out of watching the uh, the European uh, Video Music Awards back when MTV would would I think MTV two would show them over here, and it's all acts that we know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. Now, uh, Jeffrey Ullman, you. You uh, got to work with him uh, through your friend at Mizzou. What what's he like? What what's it like? He's I mean, to have such a love for the Lucha Libre movies uh-huh. and to have the skill that he has. Now I haven't seen Academy of Doom, and I want to talk about that just a little bit in a minute. Sure. Uh but as far as Aztec Mummy goes, I mean, the tone was perfect. And that's that's kind of a tough tone to hit correctly because it would be very easy to make it too dark. It would be very easy to make it too silly. And he really, I mean, this fits right in with, with the movies. I mean, it really does. Mm-hmm. What, what, how's, how, how does this guy work? How, how did he put this yeah. together? Um, you know, I, I don't, I maybe met Jeffrey when, I worked on that set, but I honestly don't remember, and I wouldn't have remembered at the time. Sure, sure. Because um, there, there was a lot going on. So I've known him basically since I've been working with this movie. And so uh, going a couple of things. First of all, with the Aztec mummy movie, I know the history of that now, and I know he really stuck to his guns with that movie. And they, you know, people who are also involved had other ideas, and they pushed for those ideas. And, you know, Jeff... He he understood like that going too dark or going too campy or you know too humorous. It's not going to work. It's gonna you know it's going to be too off. And he, 
I mean, he just understands it so deeply that he, he, he knows he can anticipate mistakes. He knows what's not going to work. And so, um, so that, that's a great thing. And he's been like that with this film and he's, he's very protective, I think, of this genre because he doesn't want somebody to make a mockery of it and he doesn't want his work to be made, um, you know, to, to seem like it's making a mockery of the genre. Right. Um, because, you know, thinking of it from the audience perspective, like they have, like we said, the expectation, they want that, um, exactly what he's done. So as far as him, he's been actually amazing because he's, been, he's been through this, everything that I, he's really been like a mentor to me. Um, you know, I'm, it's very clear that I'm the one producing this film and he's stepped aside, I think, pers- purposely trying not to not to do that I, I, maybe they're traumatized from the other movies i don't know but um <laughs> but you know he's been really good like every problem i have he answers immediately he has detailed explanations of why certain things would or wouldn't work he understands the business end of filmmaking as well and so he he's very like his approach to things is totally different than mine um, in that it's it's systematic, it's logical um, naturally because he's a you know he's a professor of robotics and so it's this opposite way of thinking that is um, really good for me to have somebody there because I'm I'm super creative and I'm you know I'm the early adopter to things I like to experiment I like to try new things and um, I like to kind of do things my own thing my own way and disregard. Um, any kind of any kind of practical approach to things. So he's always right there, you know, bringing me back, explaining why things will or won't work, or validating ideas. And he's so open to anything, you know. Even if he's playing the devil's advocate, he doesn't. He doesn't. You know, um, he doesn't say no to anything. Right. He just, you know, will will bring up the other side, bring up the potential faults of something. So. In the way I've been doing this film, I mean, we have, it's so non-traditional. The, the, the filmmaking business is broken here in the U.S. It's, it's broken, it's falling apart, and that's a great thing for filmmakers right now. And there are so many things out there that are helping filmmakers to, you know, have more control over their film, to not get, you know, caught up in, in debt. Um, trying to get their movie out there and things like that. And I've been really been an active part of many of these um, new systems. Like I, I, know, I think in the press release they have the film break on there, which is yes. helping filmmakers to connect to their audience. And so they've been instrumental in helping build the audience and they have, you know, their acquisition agreement, which is kind of this new way of, of saying we potentially can make money back if we get this film made because um, they'll help us by distributing it on certain digital platforms, not in theaters. But so that, and then the whole idea of crowdfunding and just being able to build your audience, you know, before films never built their audience first, like, and now that's an essential part of getting a film made is finding your audience, building them up and making sure they know that this is happening and that they have a role to play in it. And so that this this new way of of doing all these things that I'm doing out here, um, plus Jeff's more uh, logical, traditional approach to the business side of filmmaking, have been extremely helpful, especially in practical things that I just don't, I've never done, I've never had experience with, like talking to an agent, um, getting a letter of intent. You know, these are things that nobody teaches you how to do. 
you know, you have to crash and burn a few times before you figure out what not to do. Um, and I, I've definitely done that. And it's always, you know, Jeff is really the mentor who will tell me, um, you know, if you want to get this person, if you want to get this aspect, you know, you have to talk to them like this and you have to you know, say this and you have to make the phone call to this person and not that person because, you know, they're not going to help you otherwise. So um, his, his experience has really been the most beneficial for me. There's got to be a, a whole different way of, of, I guess you've got to sort of alter your brain a little bit to deal with certain aspects of getting a movie made. Like you said, talking to agents and talking to different people about getting things done. And it, it seems like there's almost a whole, uh, Hollywood language, which even though you're, you're sort of working, uh, not outside of, but maybe sort of to the side of the Hollywood process, it seems like there's this whole different language you have to learn to get anything done. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's that is by far one of the most difficult things about this. Not you know not just the agents, but talking to people who are potential investors, talking about distribution deals, you know, talking about pre-production and you know location and tax incentives and all these things that when you're a kid in Missouri, <laughs> you don't even know those things exist. Um, and like I really had to learn that some of those things, despite working in short films, despite going to film school, I hadn't, I didn't know that some of those things existed. <laughs> and so to learn that they exist, to learn how they operate, to learn how to talk about them is this, it's like not even, you know, it's not even something that nobody teaches you. It's something that you don't even know you have to be taught <laughs> right. um, or you have to be, you have to figure it out. And so I, and I definitely have not, aced that 100% yet but I'm I'm a little, a little better than I than I was 2 years ago for sure. Um so you know and and then when you it's a whole different system here in in LA it's sometimes like a third world country where you have uh extremely rich and extremely poor and if you're not at the top you're you're just kind of at the bottom. And um and so when you have that kind of disparity in people who work with really big numbers in terms of finances and somebody like me who's, you know, still has a day job and, uh, you know, the, the communication there is different. When I have to talk to those people, it's a different language. It's a different approach that you have to take and um, you have to figure out how to do that. And it's, it's different for people who, if you've never done that before. Well, and it does seem like, like this isn't anything you could take a class in. This isn't anything that, you know, a textbook or an instructor could tell you, all right, at this point, you're going to need to say this thing. I, this sounds like the same type <laughs> yeah. of thing that you literally have to learn by doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's no getting around it either. And, which leads to that. It's one of those deals where you're, you're probably going to get to know failure really well. Like there's bound <laughs> to be a number of times where you're just like, all right, I blew that one, but I did learn that this oh, yeah. approach, <laughs> you just sort of go on and on, and each time you get a little, you hopefully get a little bit better. Yeah, exactly. It's it's exactly, and you always you always start off by doing the 
exact wrong thing, like the exact opposite of what you should have done. It never fails, like because we have this like preconceived notion of what you should say in certain situations, and then you get in a situation, you say what you what you've seen in a movie or what you've heard other people say. And you know, I go to hear filmmakers talk, and they they say, oh yeah, you know, it took a long two years, and then boom, it happened overnight, and da da da. But nothing happens overnight. Nothing. Right. Right. Um, it's a long, it's a long, long, long road, and you know, it's it's a lot of falling flat on your face, which I'm sure I'm not even done with that yet. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'll see. But but yeah, I definitely. I, I took. I did one of the first classes when I started teaching at UCLA that I I took in the evening. Um, because that's a nice perk. I get to take those classes there. It was a film financing class, and that's actually been the most beneficial class I think I've ever taken um, in terms of film because it was a guy, and he was a longtime film financer, businessman, uh, worked at in supermarkets most of his career and before switching to film, just understood business so well and just was really, I think, concerned with watching people waste money and you know get caught up in debt and make bad deals and so he just every class was him standing up there explaining this is what you don't do um if you want to make money <laughs> and it was i mean it was like 12 weeks of that every once a week and it was really the most beneficial thing it wasn't it wasn't super detailed it was detailed enough where you could understand a system and it, that was the most he was the most realistic about it like you know you talk to people like this you you know you can't walk up and ask somebody for this that kind of thing so um that was actually really beneficial um i hope that i've applied a lot of what i learned in that class well and you've been so for the past 2 years uh how in the beginning i mean how did you really say okay I'm taking this project on. I'm going to be part of this. I mean, what what really you, you saw the script, but what really uh, this is a big life decision to be working on mission or or to be the driving force behind mission. What what made that the right thing? At what point did you say, "Okay, this is it. I'm doing this." Um that's I don't know, that's a tough question. It was it happened pretty quickly. You know, I like I like challenge. I like new things. I like the unknown. I like um, I like diving right into things and learning as I go. And that's that's just how I am. So when given that situation, um, I I usually uh, am good to go on something like that. So it was pretty close in the beginning where I just thought this was such this was too big of an opportunity to pass up. Even if I had no idea what I was doing, somehow <laughs> I'll make it work, uh, which is kind of just my approach to everything. Like, I don't know, I'll just make it work, you know. Um, so that that was really it. I mean, it was the whole idea of being a part of this, this legendary genre, working with a legend, being this, uh, the, having this cross-cultural audience, being able to reach multiple people. And it was like this movie is just kind of a culmination of so many things that had been important to me or that I had worked on. And uh, and and I was happy that I didn't write the script uh, because, I, you know, I, I always consider myself a writer by trade um, or just naturally. I mean, I've always been a writer. And I was really happy that I didn't write this script and that somebody else had done it and i could i could just work with somebody else's work and that 
that type of collaboration, I think, was also really appealing to me. It was also kind of a weight off my shoulders to know this script is finished. Like, because you you get out here and that's what everyone says. Like, oh, is your script polished? Is it finished? And that was and that that can be a lifetime of work to do that. And here I had this this script. It was it's ready to go. Um, it's ready to be you know made into a movie. And uh, it already had, you know, it's following the success of other things. It's like, if I'm somebody who can take this to the next level, then I should definitely not pass that opportunity up. Well, and having a script from somebody else, that's that's got to be a different kind of investment. It's I, I think that probably allows you to make a little different and maybe better decisions than if it was mm-hmm. your own script. To not have that personal, emotional attachment to it, to... To say, okay, this is a work that you know I'm responsible for, and and it is done. It is what it is. But you you don't have necessarily that uh, that that your heart isn't at stake as much. Yeah, you can definitely remove yourself from this, and it's it's nice. Like you know, I have a feature length script that I wrote, and I've I've just been a writer, and I've had workshops all my life, and. I'm as a writer I'm pretty good even and even as a director you know with your own film work I'm pretty good at removing myself and looking at critiques um and then being able to go back and uh fix things and proofread and or not proofread but um you know polish things off but to not have to do that period <laughs> uh, yeah. because it is a difficult process no matter how far removed you are from it to, just to not have to deal with that at all is really great and you know and I remember when I read the script, there was something that made me really, really hesitant about the movie itself. There was something I didn't like, and I couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was. And um, I, but I, I just chose to ignore it. I was like, you know, whatever it is, you know, maybe we'll we'll work it out later. I'll figure it out. We'll deal with it later. Uh, there, there was something I didn't like, and it was about I don't know, maybe a year later. And I think I was at the AFM last year and just going crazy with like all this. You know, there was a film forum in the AFM, and um, and Jeff emailed me and he was like, oh, you know, I was thinking about some of the scenes and maybe we should add more action. And you know, I was, you know, I didn't think, you know, I liked the the opening scene. What do you think? And there's so the, all these things going on, and I was like, I can't even deal with this right now. And so I was like, sure, whatever, whatever you want to change, you know, just. Let me know. I'm sure it'll be fine. And he sent over a new version with a new opening scene. And suddenly it clicked that I I hated the original opening scene. I really I didn't hate it, but I just didn't like it. It left like a bad. I didn't like the the feel. And he changed it, and it was simple and clean, and it was like really powerful and catching. And it clicked suddenly. I was like, oh my god, I I really disliked that original scene, and I couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was, but it was that, and it just set this whole new tone. And suddenly, the movie with a different opening had a a whole new tone to me. Not a whole new tone, but um, had a different appeal to me. And so it was kind of a revival of that. And I I didn't know how how you know uh, I mean we forget how how powerful those little details can be in a movie. So just his changing that and I'm really glad he was, you know, just happened to be reading through it and decided to do something different. Um, so I mean, that was kind of an interesting moment for me with the film. Well, and it is, I mean, that first 15 minutes of any movie, regardless of whether it's a new franchise or something that's ongoing or a sequel or whatever the case may be, that first 15 minutes is going to set the tone for the whole movie. It's going to tell the audience where their mindset needs to be. Uh, it's, it's going to inform really the, the world that the movie takes place in. It's going to establish, you know, a certain number of the rules. I mean, that's, that's a critical thing. 
Yeah, and it's it, and you you know I definitely I of course know those things, and I think I was um, more caught up in like the the audience side and the history side and and so many other things with the film that I you know I couldn't couldn't quite figure it out. But as soon as he made the change, you know, I I suddenly loved the opening. I still love the opening. Um, it's 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 exactly what I would have wanted if I if I had thought about it longer. But yeah. Uh, now, Mil Mascaris obviously has has had decades long career, uh, both in wrestling and in movies. Uh, he's one of the originators of the Lucha Libre movies, uh, along with El Santo and Blue Demon. Uh, and and Mill is kind of uh, Blue Demon's my guy, but Mill is probably <laughs> the biggest influence on me personally because uh, the it, Thousand Masks, and mm-hmm. I have. But myself, you know, I get new masks as often as I can get new masks. It's an important thing to me because uh, Mill really stands out because of that, uh, uh, kind of above everybody else because he really takes the flash and the image to a whole different level uh, above where any of the other uh, luchadors do with the varying masks. And the interesting thing is you always know it's him because regardless of what's on his face, he has a presence that is just commanding. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how, what, what is, what is his part exactly? I mean, he's obviously, this is very much built around him. Uh, is he, what kind of input does he have? Is he a guy who's just like, look, this is a Mil Mascaris movie. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do what I do. And that's going to be it. What? What? How? How big a part has he had? Well, uh, that's that's interesting. I mean, he to me, like, I'm uh, I'm pretty distant from Meal right now at this level, and I sure. I like keeping it that way for sure because I personally just want him to be the star. Like, I just want him to come in and be Mil Mascaras and do what he does best, you know. I'm always, I'm generally afraid of bothering people. (laughs) I definitely don't want to bother Mil Mascaras. (laughs) You know, I don't want to, I keep him updated, but really he's, he's closer to the writer, Jeffrey Ullman. So, you know, it's, it's really Jeff who kind of, you know, keeps him updated more, more so than I even do. Um, Because I'm, I'm little more than a voice on the phone, right now and until i have something really substantial to show meal um you know i don't you know better i think if he if he's just you know meal mascaris the star and and that's it um so just like you know like any actor would be i think uh and then as far as his having input he he is the expert like he definitely has input he um you know he makes suggestions on the script and he makes suggestions for you know the ways we should shoot and definitely his input is valuable cuz you know nobody nobody knows the audience better than he does you know nobody's been doing this longer than he has um he knows he knows what he's talking about for sure and when he has an opinion um it's definitely worth listening to now we've got Neil Mascaris is involved in this, but also uh, Naomi Grossman, who mm-hmm. people probably right now anyway mostly know for playing uh, Pepper the Pinhead on yeah. American Horror Story: Asylum, the second season of American Horror Story. And she, how did she get involved with this? Uh, Naomi, uh, Naomi is great, and I, 
I have this, like, I've always been worried about my ability to read a script and picture cast members. You know, I, I picture characters really well. I don't necessarily picture real people um, mm-hmm. when I read a script. And so I, Naomi was an acquaintance of mine before uh, American Horror Story. And she and some other actresses kind of run the circle. And I've directed, not with Naomi, but some of her friends. I've directed shorts with them. And so we all know one another. And then, you know, I was making this movie and suddenly my friend was like, oh, have you seen this this video of Naomi? She got this part in American Horror Story. And, you know, before I had even talked to Naomi, I saw this this video of this crazy on YouTube. Everybody's seeing, like, her shaving her head and they're doing Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that one. Yeah, yeah. And... And we were just all blown away by Naomi and like, oh, my God, and she's an amazing character actress. And we all we all know that, you know, because we we've, you know, know her. We've all seen her shorts and we know that she does characters so well. And before she was even popular, I kind of thought about it like, oh, yeah, I mean, Naomi's a character actress. And and at reading the script, I was like, I can I can see her in this part. And then, of course, Pepper blew up. <laughs> And, uh, and Naomi has been great. You know, she, I, I kind of waited. I got a little, I think, intimidated by Pepper then. <laughs> right. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to just use her because she's Pepper. Um, I, you know, I think she's the right person for this. She, she plays an alien named Naya, who's one of the, the head aliens with her evil plot to destroy the human race. Um, and, you know, reading the script and the intensity behind this character is, I mean, she's perfect for it. She's the perfect person. Um, so, you know, and when I told Naomi, Naomi is uh, fluent in Spanish. She lives in Argentina. She has all these Spanish-speaking uh, fans and uh, Brazilian fans, too. And she she loves, you know, Lucha Libre. She loves the cultural aspect and just that it's this totally off-kilter chance is she's she's been great you know she immediately jumped at um the chance she she sees the value in the movie and and everything and she got really excited about it so it was really cool well that's looking at the list of shorts that she's been involved with she it it seems like she's very sort of grounded in doing her own thing and and definitely has a good sense of sort of fun and whimsy Mm -hmm. yeah and she's a she's a really hard worker and um you know it, she's another one of those kind of success stories. She, you know, she told me, like, I told her, I was like, well, you know, I don't, you know, Pepper is, is amazing, and I know you have this fan base, so doing the whole crowdfunding thing, I'm sure that will be hopefully very helpful. Um, but, you know, and she was like, don't, she doesn't see herself as this, you know, big star. She's like, don't forget, you know, it was only a year ago I was doing YouTube videos, um, <laughs> you know. She's like, I, she's like, I still have to work every day too. And, um, you know, she, she does constantly. And that's, that's really how she got the part of Pepper. It wasn't just, um, you know, it it was, it's always a combination. She was A, the best person for the part and B, she was, um, she's worked toward that constantly, constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to get herself out there. Um, in every way she could, and and that's how that's how she got to Pepper, and hopefully we'll see her back in American Horror Story season three too. Yeah, I love how they 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 find their cast that they like, and they, and they'll reuse them over and over again. It, it creates a nice familiarity with the series. 
Yeah, and everybody's kind of waiting, waiting for that announcement. Like, oh, is she coming back? Is she coming right. back? I mean, right. even Naomi, she's waiting for that announcement. But, you know, it's always in, rumored in the press, and her fans, like, tend to find out before she does. They're, they're crazy. They love her. <laughs> well, and that's, it's interesting because she'll, she'll get an opportunity to play an entirely different type of character if, if they stick to, you know, the way they've done things in the past. Yeah. Uh, so finally, we need to talk about Indiegogo. And after, uh, two years of looking around for funding, uh, you came across Indiegogo. How, how did that come about? And it, what, what did it take for you to say, okay, this is it. We're doing it now. It's time. Uh, it took a lot for me to say that. It took a whole lot for me to say that. And when I first got this script, that was when, Kickstarter and Indiegogo really started to take off. This when suddenly people were really starting to turn to it for funds. And I didn't like it. I didn't like crowdfunding. I didn't like the thought of it. And even, um, you know, immediately when I got this, that was everybody's first question. Everybody's first question was, oh, are you going to do, are you going to do crowdfunding? Are you going to, you know, are you going to go to the audience? Are you gonna and I was like, no, I am not going to do that. No way. And the reason being was, to me, it seemed so wrong to uh, ask the audience to pay for the movie and then turn around and ask them to buy a ticket to see it. That that was just totally, seems so off to me. And, you know, and so many of like my filmmaker friends are coming up like, Oh, did you hear about blah, blah, blah. They heard they are X amount of dollars. And, and I, I hated the way that people looked at this and just saw dollar signs. Um, and I was like, you know, it's not just money. That's somebody's hard work. That somebody somebody earned that money. <laughs> and, right. Um, and you know, I would I would contribute to other friends' campaigns, and and I would contribute. And I I don't think I've ever seen any perk or reward that I contribute. I, I don't care. Like I I personally don't care. I contributed because I wanted to. Sure. But then, um, I I would it would be like three months later, the same people would be running another campaign, and I would. Be like, well, what, what, what did you do with the first twenty dollars I gave you? Why, why do you need to ask me again? <laughs> um, so I was like, I, I felt like people were not using the funds correctly. I felt like people were using it for the wrong reasons, and I felt like people weren't developing the business end um, because creative people don't tend to be business people. And yeah. I think that's really, really important that you have to know. Um, and you have to have a plan, and I am not a planner, so for me to say that is is a lot. Um, but uh, so yeah, and I did. So I continued to do this, and I got involved with Film Break, and they've been very helpful, and and also part of the learning process. And you know, I kept looking, I kept looking for actors, and again, it's partly I don't know where to find the person who's going to potentially give me uh, X number of dollars. And so, you know, I had a, a lot of interest, and it came, surprisingly, it came from the AFM last year, which I hope I never go back to, but uh, I went last year, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's the American film market, where they buy and sell films. Um, but I met, you know, people, and even before that, uh, it suddenly it generated a lot of interest in potential financiers, and so a lot of people became interested suddenly, and they wanted to... Put money, but then it came, it's such a niche film, and people, even though they say, oh, niche is good, niche is good, but when it comes down to writing that check, niche is risky. Yeah. Um, so 
they you get the same response as well we want to see someone else has taken the risk and i did find somebody who i mean this guy was ready to go he had a digital effects company and he loved everything about the movie and he loved the idea he had all these amazing ideas um and then he went <laughs> but he hadn't read the script yet and and I, I told him when I first met him, like, well, digital effects, you know, I don't, I don't really know much about digital effects. I'm a little more traditional, I guess, in the, my approach to effects. And um, I, I don't know, and it's not really something I see in the film, but, you know, I'm open to suggestions. And he had great suggestions, and I could see a lot of things working. And, you know, and then he read the script, and he was like, uh, you know, I'm really sorry, but I just don't think people want to see those kinds of effects in this movie and I was and it, it as disappointing as it was because his company could have made the whole movie for fairly low cost mm-hmm. um, it was also a nice validation that I was creatively on the right track and right, right, uh, yeah that you could see you know uh, other people understand that this is not a movie for a ton of green screen and you know computer animation or things like that so uh, and it was that was in January, I think, that he finally came to that decision. And that was, in some ways, such a letdown because it was like, oh, it was so close, you know. Um, that That's when I, I started calling – well, I started getting more involved, I think, with wrestling communities too. And what really uh, changed my mind about crowdfunding was right after that, and I had talked to – a wrestling promoter that I'd been in touch with, and he, of course, loves the movies and loves Neil Mascaras, and um, they were interested in being executive producers and, and working more with film. And so I would love an executive producer on my film. And uh, so we were talking, and the first thing he said was like, well, you know, didn't, didn't whatever happened to that mummy movie? Didn't you guys make a mummy movie? I never saw it. And then that was really when it clicked for me, and I thought, wait a second. I worked on that movie. I didn't see it until like five years later and after I had gotten my second school degree and moved to Los Angeles. And that's what crowdfunding suddenly became for me was the opportunity to reach the audience to let them know that the, this film is going to be made and to let them know it's going to be out there and we want to get it to you, um, the audience. And that's, that's really what clicked for me with crowdfunding was suddenly it, was, it wasn't just about the money. It was the opportunity to get it to the people who wanted to see it most. So it's not lost in uh, obscurity and to make people aware of it. So that, that's, that was in January. And that's really when I, I started um, going to more panels on crowdfunding and talking to you know experts on it. And then it was April when I put everything else down and I was developing a production company at the time too and working on other projects and I just put everything down in April and I was like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to do the crowdfunding and that's it. That's how we're going to do this. And so it's been since April and it's, I I mean, I, I don't even, I don't even know how to explain really. I mean, it's been constant research, constant preparation, um, you know, going to wrestling matches, making people aware, building an online presence, um, you know, developing this whole campaign, which involves a video and it involves press and it involves outreach and it involves uh, so many things and deciding your perks and making so many people aware. And it, it's been, that was in April, so April, 
five months. It's been five months of preparation that um, I've done. And I had, you know, one assistant kind of working with me on and off, and she's been very helpful. And then, um, you know, a couple other people will kind of come and go and help when they can. And, you know, it's a lot of uh, false starts with some people. You know, some people are... They, they jump on board to help you and then they make these plans and suddenly they're, they're gone and then you're stuck redoing all your work and, um, kind of like, you know, going back and having to fix things and, and, you know, I coordinated, had to coordinate a shoot, um, with, uh, Cassandro Alexotico. It's, if you're a wrestling fan, you definitely probably know Cassandro. Yes. I mean, who is unbelievably I, I can't even explain. He was so sweet and just jumped on this opportunity um, when I contacted him. And I coordinated the shoot with a friend in El Paso. They they shot him there and sent me the footage. And so that took a long time. And then Los Chivos, Kayam and Enigma de Oro, I met them here in Los Angeles at a wrestling match. And again, such amazing, sweet guys. Jumped at the opportunity. Was like, whatever you whatever you need, we're there. And we'll we'll do whatever we can to help you make this movie. And um, they've been amazing in there in the crowdfunding video as well. And so that's the kind of support that this crowdfunding thing has generated from from that audience is this really, you know, they'll they'll do whatever they can to help us out, which has been pretty amazing. And then, of course, Naomi jumped on it and she, you know, kind of uh, she came over to my house and she she did her lines for the crowdfunding, you know, in, in between like going from one job to another. <laughs> and then um, I think uh, Lee Hall, who's the other actress in, in the crowdfunding video, she's, she's always available. She's a great actress as well. And um, I've worked with her on a few things. And uh, so really excited to have her as well. And then of course me, who I, I like has the most like outtakes of anybody um, on the video, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they, they all came together and it took a long time just to shoot that video. And then, you know, I, I ended up editing it myself. I had never edited green screen. I had to do a bunch of tutorials <laughs> and, um, you know, you'll see it's not perfect, but, um, at some point, you know, when it got to be about the end of August, um, and I've partnered with, uh, Rovit, who's a company helping to promote crowdfunding campaigns and talking to the people at Indiegogo and, uh, you know, it, it just got to this point in the last couple of weeks and I was like, I'm, I cannot do anymore. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, it's ready to go. There's like, there's literally nothing else I can do. You know, um, I've, I've reached, you know, my limit with the crowdfunding. I can't prepare anymore. And so that's when we ended up launching on, uh, this week. So Monday. Yeah. Indiegogo, uh, it went up on, what was it? The 16th. Yeah. And it Finish will day. be. It'll be running through October 26th. Yes. And uh, if, if you guys go to Indiegogo.com and just search for Mill Mascaris, uh, you will find the page for Mission. And you guys have some pretty interesting uh, perks on here. How how did you how do you decide on those? I've always been curious about that because I've I've been uh, I, I agree with a lot of what you said about the crowdfunding. It's it's. It's a tough thing, and I think it goes along with what you said about not wanting to bother people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a lot of not wanting to bother people. It, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I have this thing that I'm going to make happen, but you're almost working in reverse here because you're having to do a lot of your publicity on the front end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's 
got to be kind of a daunting thing, but how did the, as far as sitting down and figuring out the perks, because I've always been curious about, you know, this guy, this stuff is in the end going to cost you guys money. You've got to figure out a happy medium between making your money for the movie and then figuring out how much the perks are going to end up being. And it, it's got to be kind of a tricky thing to do. It is incredibly tricky. Um, that that was actually one of the hardest parts for me because it's yeah, it involves first of all going back to having forethought, which is not my forte sometimes, um, and anticipating how much things are going to cost, which what what things people want most, and this lucha libre, the possibilities are endless of things you can give away. So. And there's a lot of crap out there that you could have that we could have given away, um, that is like you know small time things that we would have been charging a lot for, and you know, it would have been like paying fifty dollars for a keychain or something. Um, although I think we have a magnet at the fifty dollar, uh, but uh, <laughs> but that's 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 for other reasons. Um, but there's so much out there, and and honestly, I actually just changed it the second day because I was I still wasn't happy with it. Um, so the challenge was, how do we get something unique and related directly to the film that the audience will like, that's not cheap and that's particular to the film that they would enjoy? And so, I mean, they're just still like, I'm I'm still not sure about, so I still question some of them. So, I mean, I had, like, for example, I had the digital download at the higher price and um and a fan, it was a fan who contacted me day one. He was like, you know, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, you know, feel like I'm criticizing or anything, but just in general, you know, I don't know if that's the right price for the digital download. And, and somebody else had mentioned it too from a business perspective. And I was like, I was like, you're right. The fans spoke, so I'm changing it. So now it's the digital download for $25, which completely made sense. Um, which, which I've got to say, it, that is totally, to me, that now you've got five, you've got ten, but the twenty-five dollar digital download to me is kind of like the minimum. Like that's if you're going into this, mm-hmm. I think that's the one that is is pretty much the guarantee because anybody who's funding this obviously wants to see yeah. the movie. They obviously want to have a copy of yeah. the movie. And I speak from experience, having seen Aztec Mummy in the theater and never seen it again because, as far as I know, that's not available. Uh, in any kind of like DVD or digital it, form. Actually, it is. Uh, I think you can get it on Amazon. Oh, is yeah. it on Amazon now? You know what? I, I have a copy. I'll really send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that movie again. I want to see that movie again. I believe. Terrible. I believe Jeffrey sent it on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, he just okay. sends me copies. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So you can get it. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's gonna. It, it took. You know, that's and that's a lot of what when you know I, I work so so much by myself, you know, and I have to do so much research and figure things out and I don't always get them right. And so sometimes it just takes a couple of people saying like, Hey, you know, that doesn't quite make sense for me to, for, for it to click as to why something wouldn't make sense. So yeah, I agree. The $25 digital download, um, does make sense. And then, you know, we went up to a magnet at 50, which, um, I'm actually hoping that we'll be able to put our own image on the magnet when we said that, but I didn't promise just in case case we couldn't yeah um but i i am hoping to do that and then um i i really wanted to give away production stills i personally i mean i, I guess because i'm a photographer by trade so i really wanted to give away production skills stills from the set because I, I always think those are so cool and um so and they're so unique and things like that you know if you get one it's like 
I don't know. I think they're really cool and unique. No, I think that is so, fantastic because not not only is that something unique that nobody else is going to have, it also kind of is reminiscent of the old lobby cards that they would have for the original Lucha Libre movies uh, with just images uh, of, you know, uh, of Mill and Blue Demon standing around in the woods or something. Uh, like, that. that's that's a big collectible item, and I think that that was a good call on that one. Yeah, so we have those. And then I, another one I'm really excited about is actually the the $125 perk, which is the the Scream magazine with the Aztec mummy. I'm hoping that some people as a, like when I saw it nobody had jumped at that, but I I don't know. I personally think that one's cool um because there's a limited number, they're not everywhere, and it's a really cool image you see on that magazine. So, um hopefully people get that and then they just go up from there i mean the daniel gonzalez things are amazing those action figures he specializes and we've talked to daniel and he's he's been so supportive of that and um you know that meal mascaras figure with the changel those are um those are pricey perks but they're pricey items too right um then you get all the other stuff on top of it which is pretty cool but those, I just, those are amazing. He is like, he's a modern day artisan who specializes, you know, he takes him like three months to make just one. He does the design. He works from raw materials. Um, he does an amazing job. So those are pretty cool. And then of course, once you start going up higher, you can, um, get the associate producer credit, the co-producer credit, um, executive producer credit and, um, be uh, featured in the film as well. So that's of course really up there. That's for somebody who's, uh, super fan with the definitely a lot of disposable income. <laughs> I, um, yeah, hopefully somebody will come along and drop that. You know, I think we're we're more dependent on the fans for the smaller amounts. Well, and I think uh, you're you're in the right place to talk about action figures because that that's a big part. Of my listeners definitely know toys, uh, and a custom action figure we all know is is no cheap proposition. I mean, this this is particularly the mill with the interchangeable masks. That's yeah. amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I love that thing. Uh, you know, and Dan, uh, he, oh, um, I was just going to say, Danielle, you know, he also has talked about making custom action figures for our films, like for the villains and things too. And so when all is said and done, I'm really hoping that works out with him as well. Um, I wanted to, I really, really wanted to offer like some kind of custom action figure from the film, but that's impossible at this stage. Um, but hopefully we'll have those in the future. Well, let's hope everything takes off. Uh, Indiegogo is going to be there through October the 26th, but you're also on Facebook mm-hmm. uh, as Mission Movie. Yes, Facebook and Twitter as Mission Movie. And then yeah. Filmbreak.com has you guys featured as a project. Yeah, if you um, you can just uh, go to Film Break and search Mission, it's, uh, it'll come up. Uh, yeah, those guys are those guys are amazing. They're great. They really understand this new developing system and way of making films that's emerging, and they, I think they're a big part of that, especially here in Los Angeles. So they they've been really great. But the bottom line is. Uh if you love Lucha Libre, if you love science fiction, if you know Mil Mascaris and the movies that he does, you've got to get over to Indiegogo, search for Mil Mascaris, and check out some of these great perks that are offered. And and really, we just want to get this movie made. Uh, one one last, what's what's your final pitch line for going to Indiegogo and making this thing happen? This is a chance to be a part of film history, and I think that's that's it like you you're a part of this you're a part of film history and um that that was the big sell for me for 
for making this movie and the chance to be a part of something that's so deeply rooted in so many histories, including sports and film um, and, you know, comic books and everything. And it's a chance to be a part of something that's much bigger than yourself and that's going to live on, you know, past you. There you go. Sounds good to me. Uh, CM, thank you so much for coming on the Needless Things podcast. And we will be keeping track of Mission and what's going on. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And that's it. What an awesome interview. I feel so fortunate to have been able to talk to CM Landris about a mill frickin' mascarous movie. Wow. Uh, thank you to Joe Crow and the Dragon Con American Sci-Fi Classics track. Thank you to CM Landris for doing this interview and for being entertaining and awesome. Uh, and thank you most of all to you guys for listening. Uh, if it, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing this. I don't know, maybe I would, but, uh, it's much more uh, fulfilling knowing that there are, you know, four or five of you out there who enjoy this. Uh, anyway, uh, this is the first official post on NeedlessThingsSite.com of my 31 days of Halloween, where I talk about all things spooky and Halloween-y for the whole month of October. So every Monday through Friday, check into NeedlessThingsSite.com and I'll have some new content for you. I've got guest posts and all kinds of other stuff going on. Uh, I am organi- uh, organizing a new Earth Station Boo. That'll be Earth Station Boo 2 uh, this year. And I will also have another Needless Things podcast uh, coming in before the end of October. If you have something you want to promote, send me an email at phantomtroublemaker at yahoo.com. Right now, in a bizarre turn of events, I am booked up through January, but uh, we'll make it happen. 2014 is going to be a big, huge, crazy fucking year for me. Uh, guarantee that. And you know why? You know why? Because of you guys. I love you guys. Keep checking in, NeedlessThingsSite.com, iTunes, Stitcher. You know the drill. Later. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at ESONetwork.com.